So how many of you guys come from a dysfunctional home or past? Come on, baby. Okay, everyone that did not put your hands up will try this again, okay? Because I'm telling you, everybody's hand ought to be up. How many of you came from a dysfunctional past or home? If you did not, you are not human. You are not a human being. Maybe you had less dysfunction than somebody else. Maybe you had more dysfunction than somebody else. But we are all coming from a past of dysfunction. We are born into this planet with a nature of sin in us that creates dysfunction from the second the birthing process starts. And so we come from dysfunction. Really, I think a better way to say it would be, what is your dysfunction? What is is mine? And what we do in our lives is that that which is dysfunctional, either in us or from what we came from, we create these wonderful things we call brochures, walls, masks, to try to hide our dysfunction from everybody else so that they do not recognize we are dysfunctional. And then what we do is, whenever we find someone else's dysfunction, we, we, we jump on it, right? And not necessarily like publicly, but internally. Oh, can't believe they do that. Can't believe they think like that. Can't believe they have that opinion. Can't believe they vote that way, right? I mean, it doesn't really matter. Whatever it is we do, we find where somebody else seems to be more dysfunctional than us, and then we immediately step into judgment. And then our dysfunction, what we do with ours is we hide it from everybody else, but for us, we compare it to everybody else. Oh, I wish I was more like, eh, and oh, I, I can't do, uh, and why do they have that gifting, and how come they're that kind of a mom, and how come he's that kind of a, this, a just constant, and so we live in an entire world of either judgment or shame. It's how we roll, right? It's how we roll. We're judging what's out there. We're shaming ourselves, and the enemy is having a field day. And James, uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit, writes in the book of James, uh, this beautiful invitation, man, confess your dysfunctions to each other. Pray for each other that you might be healed, right? So confess your sins to each other, he says, and pray for each other that you might be healed. There's this beautiful space in which we're like invited to just kind of go, here it is, here's my dysfunction. You know where else we do that? We do that in church, don't we? Church is like a family, it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be like a family, not like a, not like a restaurant where you come in, you get served and you tip on the way out. It's supposed to be a family where you come in, you bring with you whatever you have and you lay it on the table. It's like a potluck. You bring your gifts, I bring mine, we do it together, God is glorified, right? It's supposed to be a family. And here's what we do. We walk around, especially in our culture, and we look at all the other churches. And we go, oh my, I can't believe they do it that way. Can't believe they act like that. Oh my gosh, have you heard the preaching of that church? It's ridiculous. Why, why does anybody go there? I don't even understand. Oh, my church is awesome. Or after a while, when we've been in our dysfunction long enough, because every one of our churches is dysfunctional, right? Because we're in them. <laughs> we, we start going like this. Oh, I wish I could be at that church. But God has called me here to stay and make change. Yeah, God will never... Well, maybe not never, but rarely call you to stay and make change. Just always remember that. Stay and be part of, yes, stay and make change. That's different. I mean, we just live in this world where we tend to just kind of hide our junk and judge everybody else's and shame ourselves in our church world. 
And there's an invitation in scripture on that as well. Paul is writing letters to some of our ancient family members, churches that used to exist during uh, the just past time of Jesus. And he's writing to them and when he writes to them, it's this invitation into how we should live because he doesn't write a brochure. He writes a reality. He calls them out on stuff. He says, so we get to see the dysfunction in these churches. We also get to see the beauty. He writes beautiful things, and then he writes, I, I don't even get why you're doing this. And as he does that, what we get to see is that he's laying out before us, this is what a functional church looks like. A family that belongs to God and is functioning correctly looks this way. So if these dysfunctions are present in your setting, and I'm go all shame on me, but, but, but reflect on that, re recognize it, and, and remedy it. Because you have the Spirit of God in you, and you have the freedom because of your identity in Christ, both as an individual and a church, to kind of go, here's my dysfunction. And then we get to go, well, let's, let's start working, discipling, journeying, praying together so that the dysfunction goes away and the enemy loses and the glory of God is made true. So that's what Paul is doing. He is writing to ancient family members about dysfunction. We are currently uh, journeying through one of the letters he wrote. We're in the book of Acts uh, from a... From a uh, um, a time standpoint, a historical standpoint, uh, uh, and, and, and we're in the middle of the journey with Paul. He's on his third missionary journey. Uh, he's just gotten sort of to Ephesus. He's hanging out there, doing some stuff there. He was in Corinth a few years earlier than this moment we're with Paul. When he was in Corinth, he spent 18 months there discipling the church. That's important to always remember because when he's writing this letter, what's a little different in this letter than perhaps in a letter like the, the letter to the Galatians is, is that he is, he is not explaining a lot of stuff in this letter. He's just kind of going, you're doing this? Come on, you know better, right? Why is he doing that? Because he spent a long time with them. And so they ought to be able to read between the lines on a lot of stuff. He's, he's just being straight up with them. He's not, he's not being diplomatic. He's not going through 19 explanations. He's just going, you're doing this. I heard about it. What's up? Come on. And so we're seeing him write this beautiful letter to the church of Corinth, uh, kind of trying to help them recognize their dysfunction and remedy it. Because he got word from Corinth while he was in Ephesus. Someone came to him and said, Paul, th those guys have gone nuts, man. I mean, they look just like the rest of Corinth does. No different, and they're calling themselves Christ followers, which they are, but they, they just don't get it. You need, you need to do something about this. Remember the culture in which this church existed, right? This was a culture in Corinth where anything and everything goes. That's what the culture was. Anything and everything goes within the cultural context, okay? Uh, this was a culture uh, that what you feel was king. What you feel was king. So therefore, if it feels good, it is good. That's how this culture functioned. Anything goes, what you feel is king. If it feels good, it is good. Now you can imagine if you grew up in a culture like that, wait, no, we don't have to imagine that. We actually do, so that works out well, okay? We actually live in that culture, so we don't have to imagine it, but when you live in a culture like this, what you can imagine is that if you were to come out of that culture into the gospel, there might be some significant misunderstandings about how the gospel worked. 
And what had happened in the church in Corinth is that they grossly misunderstood what freedom was uh, from a gospel perspective. You see, they thought that the freedom was that because Jesus died and, and did all this, that they were set free from everything so they could do anything. You see what I'm saying? It's not a very difficult jump, is it? Because remember when Paul was with uh, uh, the, the church in Galatia, they came from an environment where the Jews lived by the law, right? So when the gospel came to them, uh, they walked into the church and they thought, well, Jesus died for us so we can live by the law. And Paul had to write them and say, no, no. No, the gospel came to set you free from the bondage of the law. The law is good, but it came to set you free from having to live legalistically by it. So you can imagine in Corinth, Paul was there with the guys, and he's going, now, now let me just, I was in Galatia last, and, and I gotta tell you, just one thing I want to hammer into you, okay? You don't come to Jesus so he can bind you to the law, and you live under the weight of the law. You are free from the law. But in a culture like this one, how would you hear that? How would you interpret that? Oh, that's a sweet deal. So I'm free from the law in the gospel. I'm from Corinth where anything goes. Feeling is king, and if it feels good, it's good. I'm, I'm gonna, this is awesome. So you can see how they might run around and say, I love Jesus, and then go to the temple and hang out with a prostitute. Right? I mean, you could see how that would happen. Because in their minds, it's like, it's, it's all good. It's, it's all fine. I've, Jesus has taken care of all of this. Not, not to mention, in Corinth, another thing started coming to the surface within the church. The beginnings of what we will later know as Gnosticism, a, a religious philosophy, that was starting to be born in Corinth. And what Gnosticism ultimately is, is it says that the physical world and the spiritual world are utterly separate. They are not the same. So your body and your spirit are not the same. So what you do with your body doesn't matter to the eternal only what you do with your spirit. So your body is yours, and you can do with it as you see fit, and it doesn't really matter what you do because the body's not part of eternity. You with me? That's just what's here. So if you put together a, 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 a Gnosticism, and you put together urges are good, and, and what feels good is good, you get to some interesting territory, don't you? Well, with this thing right here, I can do whatever I want because Jesus died and saved me from all the junk, so my spirit is good for eternity. My body doesn't go anyways. My body is mine, and I can do with it as I please. And I grew up in Corinth where anything goes. They used to have a saying in Corinth, food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. You're like, what? Think that through for a second. It's a, it's a saying that says, if you have an urge, go for it. It's natural. I mean, food's for the stomach. Stomach's for food. Do it. And you can... You can roll that puppy out all the way, you with me? They had that saying whenever they were doing other things too, right? They would just say, oh, I'm about to go walk into that room, I shouldn't be with that person, but food is for the stomach, stomach is for food. I mean, why not? It's urge, it's natural, it's a feeling, it's good. My body's here, my spirit is there, and God has saved me. So can you imagine what was going on in the church of Corinth? Quite a bit of stuff, huh? Quite a bit of stuff. And then Paul writes them, and he says, listen, God has invited you as a church to be set apart, to bring glory to him, to expand the kingdom, and to make the gospel beautiful, and you're acting like children running around with a culture, playing with the things they play with, buying into their junk, and it's making no difference. If you wanna actually be the church, then this dysfunction, man, it is wrecking that story. 
and he's writing to them about how to remedy these things. Let's turn to the book of 1 Corinthians and we're gonna jump in and see where Paul goes next. He's talked with them quite a bit about God's wisdom versus the world's wisdom. He's talked to them uh, quite a bit uh, about how we function as a church and, and, and how we function as a single unit in unity. He's talked to them about how these things play out and now in chapter six, Verse 12, he's gonna speak into a very specific issue that is going on inside the church that is undercurrent and public, and he wants to speak to it to say, guys, this is, this is not the way to roll. This is not the way to roll at all. Take a look. Verse 12 of chapter six, page 620, if you're using one of our Bibles, page 620. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. What a crazy way to start this little section of the book, right? Why why does he start this way? I just wanna be clear all things are lawful for me. Why would Paul do that? He's about to deal with some things they need to bring into submission in their life, and he starts by saying "It's, it's all lawful. Here's why, because Paul is absolutely committed to the fact that we don't misunderstand the gospel either in its legalism or its lawlessness. Legalism is from the pit of hell. Lawlessness is from the pit of hell. You with me? They're both bad. If you live lawlessly, you are just under no law, very bad, and if you live under the law as though that makes you righteous, that's very bad. And what Paul wants to say is listen, You are not under the law by some obligation to keep yourself righteous so that God will like you, but the law is still good. See what he said? I'm not under the law, but at the same time, not all things I do is helpful. The law is helpful to me. It protects me. It says, I told you you shouldn't do that. It's a protection now. See how the laws change? So Paul's reminding them. We are not under the law. All things are lawful for us, but not all things are helpful. Why would you ignore the law when it's good? Do what it says because it's helpful, not because you have to. That's why he also says, I am under no obligation to any law, but I'm not gonna allow myself to be dominated by something else. The law protects us from our addictions, it protects us from our idols, it protects us from those things that will come and dominate us and take us and imprison us. The law rescues us from that which imprisons us. And that's what Paul starts. The law is good, you ought to pay attention to it as a protection to you so that you don't get dominated by your urges and your idols and get bound in ways you have no need to be bound because you now know the gospel. So that's Paul's attitude. Let's take a look at how Paul rolls with these boys. Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. See what he just did, he quoted them. He quoted their quote. Hey, this is how I roll. The law is not my obligation, but it is my protection and I live by it because it is helpful and I'm not gonna be dominated by my urges. How do you all live? Food is for the stomach, stomach is for food. Sounds like you're dominated by your urges. Sounds like you're dominated by that which drives you. Sounds like your natural feelings just drive you. That was the culture, that's not you guys. 
and then he says it. Here it is. It's like, that's why I said, remember, Paul, when he's writing to these guys, he's already talked to them for 18 months. He's not going to go through a paragraph of softness, okay? He's not sandwiching the stuff between two sweet little good things about them. He just goes right at it. Jugular. Here we come. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. Oh, we know what we're talking about today, don't we? <laughs> I mean, it's like, he's just like, here's the urges, here's the trouble, here's the problem with the body, here's the whole deal. Guys, our bodies were not designed to function in sexual immorality. That was not what we were made for. See, the Corinthians would have disagreed with that at first. Well, hold on, it's an urge. I mean, I got urges, you got urges, let's go do it. And he's going, no, that's not what we were meant for. And now he places as though to oppose their quote, Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. He replaces that quote with a gospel quote about how our bodies function now. Take a look. It's beautiful. Look at this. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. See what he just did? When I first read that, I'm like, why would you say that? The body's meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Again, it's kind of weird until you go, no, no, no. He's, he's making a statement about their quote. Food for the stomach, stomach for the food. And he goes, no, no. Your body for Christ and Christ for your body. You belong to someone else now. You don't belong to you. You don't belong to your urges. You don't belong to whatever you feel. You belong to the truths and realities of God. And now he begins to unpack this reality, expanding on it so he can explain to them why the statement, our bodies are not meant for sexual immorality, is in fact biblically sound as he writes it down. Look at this. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. What did Paul just do? Look what he's doing. He is undermining their Gnosticism. He is undermining their cultural reality. They believed you went with your urges because they're natural, stomach for food, food for stomach, and your body is your body and it doesn't belong to him and it ain't going anywhere. So Paul just in one sentence went like this. Your urges are not what should drive you and by the way, your body's gonna be resurrected and it's gonna be with Jesus just like his so you better take care of it. Gnosticism doesn't play. Our body and our spirit are tied together in ways that relate to one another. And we can't play with this thing as though it has nothing to do with what's inside of us. That's why people are constantly in our cultural context, ah, if you mess around with that or you do that, it's no big deal. As though, because there are no physical consequences, all is well in the world. It does massive, destructive horror to our insides when we engage in sexual immorality and we jump into that stuff. It's, it's death and danger in those spaces. Now take a look what he says here. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the member of Christ and make them a member of a prostitute? Now Paul's getting all logical on us, isn't he? Let's just take a look at this thing. See, because we forget this stuff, don't we? We forget the realities in our identity, and when we forget our identity, we begin to dabble in all sorts of stuff, thinking it's, it's just sin, it's just sin, and the gospel's big, and God will forgive me. And there's truth in that. God will forgive our sins, no matter what we do. It's crazy cool. But what Paul's trying to do is, d don't have such a small view of what's actually happening. Your body is now tied to Christ. This, 
the, the divine creator and sustainer of the universe lives and resides in you. What are you gonna do? Go, go tie that to a prostitute? As though the two belong in the same space? That's got nothing to do with a prostitute. Prostitutes belong in the glory and wonder and, and grace of God as much as any one of us because we are all prostitutes in our own right, are we not? But he's saying this act of giving yourself in sexual immorality, do you understand what is happening? No, he's not done. He's like, okay, we're just getting started on how this impacts everything, right? Now look, he's gonna go even further. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her, for it is written, the two will become one flesh. You see what he's doing? This is an extraordinary uh, a, a little journey with Paul because he is weaving together their cultural realities with biblical realities and beginning to demonstrate that when, we, that when we dabble in sexual immorality, though we think that just fits into the normal category of little things we do, I lie a bit, I steal a bit, I do a little sexual immorality, he's going, I, I hear you, it's all the same in terms of sin, no doubt, but the impact that this has on you and on the story that you were created to live now to glorify God is massive. It's massive. It's kind of like lying to someone and murdering someone from a large umbrella of sin category kind of falls into this category. It's all sin, right? Right? But when you lie to someone, you get to say sorry when you're done. When you kill them, you don't, right? So murder has a slightly larger consequence, doesn't it? And what he's trying to say here is, this stuff has consequences that seem invisible to you, but they are, they're not invisible. They have consequences to you, and they have consequences to the gospel, and they have consequences to the church, and they have consequences to how the culture then experiences the redemptive story of God. This is a big deal. Now watch, oh he's not done, sorry, yeah, there's more. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So he, he closes this little thought this way. Your body is gonna be resurrected one day into eternity, so your body matters. Two, your body is for him, not for you. It belongs to him, not to you. Three, your body is part of his body now. Why would Paul say something like that? Do you remember what Jesus said? The church is my, you can say it, body, that's right. Do you realize that we are all part of the body of Christ? Whoa! We're part of the body of Christ. We carry the body of Christ, not in like flesh and blood weirdness. I'm just saying we represent the realities of Christ and he is the head and we are the body and when we act a certain way, we act on his behalf. Do you know what that means? That's why Paul said, if you join yourself with a prostitute, do you understand what you're doing? Do you understand what's happening there? You don't get to stop being a, a Christ follower in that moment. You don't get to stop being the body of Christ. You don't get to stop being an ambassador of Christ. You're just being a bad ambassador. As we all can be. Take a look at this. What is the conclusion? Now that we kind of go, whoa, that's big. Here's what he says. Flee from sexual immorality. That's his conclusion. Run! Run for your life! If it's near you, if it's in you, if it's around you, if you're in it, if you're doing it, don't say it's okay. 
I'll get it sorted out. I'll get it figured out. I'll work through it. Give me a few months. Let me think. No, he's like, get up. Get up and run. Run for your life. Because it's like, a, it's like a horrid reality coming to get you. And it's doing such destruction to you, such destruction to those you love, such destruction to the gospel, such destruction to the church, such destruction to the glory of God. And, and even if nobody ever sees that, you, the body of Christ, are tying yourself to things that have no space in the sacred. I love that Paul has now said that, flee, flee from sexual immorality, and that I can, I can just feel it in Paul. It's like a guy that's preaching a sermon, and you've said it, and said it, and said it, and you're looking at the people, and you're like, I don't think you're getting it, and you've made your conclusion points, and then you come back on the back end, and you're like, I gotta say more. I, gotta, I, I feel like you're not, quite, you're not quite there yet at the magnitude of what I'm talking about, right? And look what Paul does. He does exactly that. Every other, sins, uh, every other sins, a, a sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Now, now, now that seems super odd again. This is a very odd passage until you tie it to things and see what Paul's doing. So he's saying, the other sins are outside the body, this one's in the body. We've made all sorts of books out of this, and, and I'm like, it's not, that, it's not that big a thing, it's about what he says next. It has nothing to do with like comparing sins, and this one's worse, because it's in the body, and that one's not, and it's out of the body. It's not that at all. He's, all he's saying here is this, that when we engage in sexual immorality of any kind, it is about our body, and it is part of our body, and we are part of the body of Christ, and, and so I, he's trying to make the point, listen, I, I know all sin is equal, but this one has impact here in a unique way. And so I wanna show you what I mean by that, Paul says. Watch, watch. He says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, who you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought, bought with a price. See what he just said? Oh my gosh, look what he just did. This is so crazy cool, okay? He just told us our bodies are where the Spirit of God resides. We knew that, right? And so he turned our body into something extraordinary. He turned it into the temple of the Holy Spirit. He just did that. We've used that verse a thousand times for a thousand things, but here's what it was intended to be used for. This thing that you think means nothing that you think has no impact on anything, it is the sacred space in which the Spirit of God resides. It is the sacred space in which the Spirit of God resides. Do you, do you remember Jesus ever being angry? Like, I mean, for real angry. Like mad. Like red-faced, screaming at the top of his lungs. Violent in his actions. Jesus, you know, the meek and mild. The Lamb of God. Ever remember him being mad? Do you remember the one time he was mad? There was only one time. I, I went and checked, right? I'm, I'm sure he was mad in here a lot. When they were trying to stone the, the prostitute and he was drawing in the sand. People have written books about that. My estimation is he was, he was counting to 10. Don't kill them one. Don't kill them two. Don't kill them three. Don't kill them four. He's counting to 10. And then he got up and said, okay, now let's talk. Because man, I would have wanted to kill them all. <laughs> so that's just me. That's why I'm not God. You guys are lucky. Um, so. Jesus gets mad, when does he get mad? He walks into his father's house, the temple, and at that time, before he had died, the place where God's presence resided was actually the temple, in the Holy of Holies. 
And in the court of Gentiles, outside of the middle court of the Jews, uh, what they were doing is these guys were selling birds and stuff so that people could sacrifice. They'd made a business out of it. But the business had gotten out of hand, so they were cheating, stealing, and specifically they were cheating and stealing the Gentiles because they thought, I don't even know anybody other than Jews inside anyways. And so they were dealing with a people group that God was about to graft into an incredible story. And He walks in and he sees this going on in the temple and it's inappropriate, it's the bottom line, it's just inappropriate. You do not take this reality of sinfulness and bring it into the sacred and go, it's it's all good, it's all good. The gospel's big, God is forgiving. Let's bring it into the sanctuary, right? I mean, just like even us, though God does not reside in this building, this sanctuary is just a building, God resides in us, there is something about this space, right? Because we come together here that's sacred. You wouldn't want to come in here and have us doing all sorts of stuff in here that would be all inappropriate, would you? And what, what Paul's saying is, you don't get it, do you? There's no space anymore where inappropriate is appropriate or inappropriate. There is only this space. And what you do here, what you do with this, is bringing in to a space, something from the outside that is not sacred into the sacred. When he says flee from sexual immorality, what he's trying to say is be like Jesus in the temple. When stuff comes in here and you find it or you know it's there, get in there, get it, get it out. That's what you ought to do. This is, this is not a message about shame and, and, and guilt. This is a message about reality and what's actually going on. And once he's laid out in every adequate way to all of us the seriousness of living in sexual immorality and what it does to you, to your loved ones, to the gospel, to the church, to the glory of God, to the, to the body, to the spirit, to the sacred temple of God. I mean, we covered all the ground, right? I think if we don't get the seriousness of it by now, we're never gonna get it, right? And then he does this, watch this, last sentence of this paragraph, right here, he just brings it all home to to remind you that his motive is not to shame us, his motive is not to make us feel all guilty, his motive is to set us free. Watch. So, glorify God in your body. (laughs) The simplicity is unbelievable. I mean, he just laid out into us. Now be careful, watch that, it's in you, it's get it out, flee, run, it's very bad, it's not sacred. So glorify God with your body. All this I just told you is just so you can glorify God with your body. I'm not telling you this so you can feel bad, I just want you to glorify God with your body, why? Because you were made for that. See, Paul's grief is whenever we are living lives we were not made for where we are dominated by idols and urges and addictions we were not made for. And so he just wants us to be free. I want you to be free because when you are free, what happens when you are free? Then your freedom spills out of you and you do exactly what you were created to be. You live in freedom with God and then you make your freedom known and then people are free because they see freedom and redemption expands and the gospel is beautiful and the kingdom of God gets bigger and God is glorified. And your bodies are a sacred space where you ought to take that seriously. So go glorify God with your bodies. It's, it's like what C.S. Lewis said. I, I love the C.S. Lewis, uh, incredible thinker, author, and, and he wrote this one time in a, in, a, in a book called The Weight of Glory. Here's what he wrote. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Interesting statement, isn't it? 
We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slums because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What C.S. Lewis is saying is the life of Christ, the gospel, it's a hard journey into it because it calls you into the opposite of everything you thought that was freedom. But once you're in it, it is such extraordinary freedom, transcends so much that the urges that drive us now that feel so right and so good where our feelings are king are in fact a pathetic version of what is beautiful. And that's where we need to land. No wonder, (laughs) no wonder the enemy comes so hard at us and throws into our face the opportunity for sexual immorality, doesn't he? I mean, in our cultural context, it's everywhere. You used to have to walk into a store and purchase something off a shelf and either steal it or go through the embarrassing, I'm paying for it and now the clerk knows it and she seems to be looking at me weird because I'm buying this. And that was a decent restriction to kind of, I, I want to look but I can't and I, I shouldn't and then how do you do it and slip in my pocket, now I'm lying and stealing and sex, I'm mean, so much. And now I pull out of my pocket this little square thing. This little square thing and it's connected to this this thing called the web. And on the web, every three seconds, every three seconds, there's a new video posted. And there's no one between me and that button. No clerk that's gonna look at me weird. No embarrassing moment, I just go and enter in as I see fit. Pornography's everywhere. And it's available. And it's no longer restricted, so it has to come from here instead of from out there. Convenience marks our, character, uh, our, our culture, doesn't it? So when it's between character and convenience, we opt for convenience 95% of the time, unless character has large consequences. So it's very inconvenient not to live together until you're married. It sure is, it's expensive, you gotta have two places and sleep on a couch and I mean you like the person and what has the culture really told us? Is there really any downside to this? I mean, in fact, there's an upside, isn't there? If you live together, you get used to it before you get married, so if you wanna bail before the covenant, you can bail before the covenant, right? And then the real statistics come out and show us the devastation of that reality and the beauty of saying, I want to make the gospel beautiful, not me. And we choose character over convenience. Sexual immorality has become so normalized in our cultural context that we don't hardly even think when we're doing it anymore. I mean, you know, there, there used to be fringes, but now it's not even fringes. I mean, in in every TV program on the radio yesterday, there was a commercial, just on the radio, regular old radio, a commercial. And I I can't even repeat it for you in this room. I I legitimately can't, but they were saying, if you buy this, we'll send you this. Uh, And and it was videos, and they're like, and they were talking to couples. I'm like, "That, that stuff does not help couples. That stuff sinks them. It's like, oh, yeah, we'll send it to you. And this is regular radio, right? I mean, it's everywhere. And <laughs> here's, here's the great one. Our urges trump our commitments. Okay, everybody look inside yourself right now. That one was for all of you, and that one's for me. Our urges trump our commitments, they do. 
We don't usually categorize it into sin, but when we've made a commitment but something else comes up that's cooler, we bail on the commitment. And so why would our urges not drive us when they become strong enough? See, the enemy has thrown this at us, and here's what stats say. Here's what stats say. Sitting in this room today, that more than half of us are probably currently involved in some form of sexual immorality. That's what the stats say. Now, it's just stats, so maybe in this particular room, it's only 30% of you, 30% of us. Or maybe it's 70% of us, I don't know, because we keep that stuff secret, because we don't bring it to the table, because it's embarrassing, especially in the church context. In the locker room, it's not so embarrassing, but in the church context, it is, right? And here's what Paul's saying to us. Remember where we started this out? We can live hidden in shame, the brochure, and then look out and judge. That's option one. It's deadly, it's horrid, it doesn't make us uh, a functional church, it makes us a dysfunctional church. Or we can dare to trust God's invitation into the light, into the light, and say, what if God set it up this way? When you're struggling with dysfunction, when you're struggling with stuff, you can hide it all day long, and maybe no one will ever know but it's still dysfunctional and it's still affecting the church and it's still affecting your body and it's still affecting eternity and it's still affecting the sacred temple of the Holy Spirit and it's still affecting Christ and you're still an ambassador for him and none of that has changed. And God says, come in the light to the safe place of community and share your dysfunction and pray for each other so that you might be healed. And when he says pray for each other, that was a statement of discipleship. It was get in life together. And so here's the deal. How about we abandon judgment and shame on this one? And how about we step into light and freedom? If you say to me, man, if I tell someone, no one's gonna believe I do that, I'm gonna tell you no, it's exactly the opposite. I'd be surprised if some of you aren't. Just, I'm just throwing it out there, and you go, really? Like, yeah, have you seen what's around us? If you are stuck in sexual immorality of any kind, you're looking at stuff you shouldn't, you're with someone you shouldn't be inappropriately in a relationship, you're sexually active outside of marriage of, of any kind, in any category, then that's what this is talking about. And we wanna be a free and functional church, don't we? I mean, don't we, don't we wanna change the world? I, th I think I remember saying that. We don't get to change the world when under our hidden spaces there's a bunch of stuff going on. And what, what Paul's trying to tell us is this, stop being afraid and fearlessly walk into the light. Ecclesiastes 11.7 says this. Light, light is, is pleasure. It's beautiful, it's pleasing to the eyes. When the eyes see the sun, it is a delight. Isn't that beautiful? Light is wonderful. So, here's what we're gonna do. You ready? Simple, here it is. We are gonna invite you to dig deep and if there's stuff going on, and you know, you know you're already sitting there going, oh, I should have stayed home today, darn it. I, I know, I get it, but this is freedom. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna, we're gonna simply ask you, we're gonna simply ask you to take a giant step and step out from the darkness into the light this way. It's this simple, right? Light at thisismosaic.org. <laughs> light at thisismosaic.org, super simple. And you email us as a first step and we're not gonna pick up the phone, call your spouse. So you know, that's not that, ring, ring, <laughs> we just got an email from your, your spouse. We're not gonna do that. We're gonna step in, we're gonna journey with you 
until we can sit together with your spouse and family and life and church and you can say, I am free of this. Let's dare to examine our own dysfunction as Paul invites us into the dysfunction of the church in Corinth and see where it takes us. Perhaps into freedom if we dare. Let's pray. God, thanks for your incredible love for us that you would make your redemptive work so big that it essentially does not matter anymore what we have done, what we are struggling with. It is big enough. The gospel is big enough to redeem us. It is big enough to set us free. So instead of us lingering for weeks and months and years in things that are dominating us and binding us and keeping us in places where we are not functioning as the church, as your body, as ambassadors, in the truest sense because even if things are in secret and nobody knows and it's affecting nobody, you have shown us clearly that it is affecting everything. May we have the courage to walk free of that stuff and dare to live in a freedom that once fully realized will bring us awake to the fact that we can, in fact, enjoy a holiday by the sea instead of playing with mud pies in the slums. I pray for courage for all those sitting here that are currently in the dark, in the shadows, with sexual immorality, that they would dare to trust you enough to trust us enough to send an email and to say, I would like some help. And may we have your strength to graciously and lovingly walk with those into freedom, with those of us that step out into light, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.